You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, archaeologists, children, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. And just offshore of the KWMR listening area are the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which protect together over protect 4,581 square miles. On past episodes of Ocean Currents, we've discussed the alarming growth of trash found in the ocean globally. The infiltration of plastic debris into aquatic habitats has become a global environmental problem. And studies are expanding globally as well as sharing of information and advocacy efforts to reduce plastics that are harmful to marine life and maybe even essentially human life. On today's show, we'll explore two aspects of the problem. On the first half of today's show, I welcome Dr. Chelsea Rockman, a marine ecologist and ecotoxicologist in the Aquatic Health Department Aquatic Health Program at UC Davis. Her studies range from documenting microplastics in marine life to studying the cocktail of contaminants that come with ingesting plastic. If you're a seafood consumer, you're going to want to stay tuned for this part of the program. And on the second half of the program, I welcome Jeff Kirshner of Literati, a tech entrepreneur that is engaging national and international audiences with social media by building a relational database to capture the who, what, where, and when of litter. So stay tuned. We're talking about trash, talking about seafood, talking about a lot of cool research happening on ocean currents. And welcome back. You're listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. And on the first half of this program, we're talking with Dr. Chelsea Rockman. And Chelsea, I believe I have you live here on the air. Chelsea, you're live on KWMR. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for calling in. I'm so delighted to talk with you. I've been reading a lot about your work for a few years, and it's great to finally have you here on on Ocean Currents. Thank you. Why don't we just start with what is your, you've been working on plastic, trash research, and microfibers, and a lot of different topics for a while. What is the current focus on your research right now? So currently I'm, I guess, looking at two different things. One is how the contaminants that are associated with the plastic move up the food chain, including into food that we eat. Um, And then also looking at the sources of the microplastics, so the really small plastics, less than one millimeter into the watershed, um, but into urban watersheds. So what are the land-based sources of microplastic debris going out into the ocean and into lakes? which there are lots of sources. And why don't we start with some of the smallest stuff that um, I know you've just recently report, uh, published a report about microfibers showing up in fish that are, and shellfish that are sold in markets. Can you tell us a little bit about this study? Sure. So I guess throughout the time that I've been doing research on marine debris and plastic debris, the question has often come back to, well, what does it matter for our own species? Does it matter to human health? So the first part of that question is just to say, is our plastic waste actually entering into our own seafood? So is the mismanagement of our waste coming back to haunt us on our dinner plate? So we first just wanted to see, is it even there before we could then start to look at, you know, how the contaminants might be moving into our own food chain? So a group of colleagues and myself did a study where we just simply went to fish markets in both um, Indonesia and an island community in Sulawesi and also in California in the Half Moon Bay um, piers and just simply bought fish and some oysters, so some shellfish, and just looked for the presence of microplastic in the fish. And what were some of the findings? Oh, well, actually, what were some of the species that you sampled here in California? Good question. Uh, so the Pacific oyster was one of them. 
Um, and then we also sampled some mackerel, and we sampled uh, tuna, salmon, and some different types of bass and rockfish. Okay. And what were some of the, uh, the findings? So one of the things that surprised us in terms of what we found is that there was really no difference in the frequency of occurrence of plastic debris between both locations. So we found... Um, anthropogenic debris, and I say that because for some of the fibers, we're not 100% sure if they're synthetic. They could be cotton, but they are from human textile, human-made textiles. Um, so we found anthropogenic debris in one in four animals that we sampled. So 25% of everything we purchased had plastic or some type of debris in their gut. Um, the difference, I guess, the striking difference between the two locations was the type of the debris. So in the markets in Indonesia, we feel pretty confident that everything we found was plastic and that they were fragments or broken down pieces of larger materials. But in California, about 80% of what we found were these fibers. So that comes back to what you mentioned before about starting to look at fibers in the marine environment because we did tend to find them in quite a bit of our fish from California. So... We were hearing a lot in the news in the last few years about microplastics from products like facial products and the work that Five Gyres has been doing in terms of the beads that are associated with those. And these fibers are different. They come from clothing. How new is this in terms of a finding in the ocean? Have we quantified those types of fibers in the ocean itself? It's, I'm, this is the first time I'm hearing about it in terms of finding it through finding it in fish. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. Um, so I think in the beginning when people started looking at microplastic, we were looking at pieces um, that were less than 5 millimeters in size, and that was the definition that was actually coined by NOAA's Marine Debris Program. And as the technology got better and the methods improved, we were then able to identify and quantify smaller and smaller pieces, including ones, you know, in the micron and nano size range. And so now um, we're starting to find smaller things, and fibers are cropping up in a lot of samples. And so now you start to see an awful lot of papers coming out reporting the presence of fibers in deep-sea habitats, in coastal sediments, in open ocean samples, in samples of water from bays and lakes, and now also in, um, in fish. And our study was not the first to show it in fish. It was just the first to show it in fish that were purchased from a market. But many have found fibers in all different types of marine animals and even freshwater species. Now, obviously, the presence of um, a plastic fiber in a fish might cause a lot of concern. What are some of the um, health risks associated with the potential of, well, they're eating plastic. We know that. Sure. And we know some of the impacts on birds and mammals and maybe larger fish. But what are some of the potential impacts on fish that mm -hmm. they may experience from ingesting plastic? Yeah, so some of the work that I've done in the laboratory has looked at this question specifically, but not really in regards to fibers, more with the plastic fragments, so things that are really similar to or made out of the same things as the microbeads, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and basically, it's twofold. So plastics in the ocean both ha can have a chemical and a physical impact. Physically, they can get lodged in the gut. They can um, actually perforate the gut and cause an animal to feel full or even if the digestive tract is ruined, it can cause harm, including mortality. So those are kind of the physical effects. And even though these microplastics are so small, if they're ingested by a plankton, they're relatively large, right? What the other side oh. of it, which is something I guess I've looked into a bit more, is the chemical toxicity. And so microplastics or plastic debris in general is associated with a cocktail of chemicals when it ends up in the aquatic habitats. And half of that story is the ingredients that are associated with the material from manufacturing. The other half of that story is that they are like magnets for a lot of the other chemicals out there, the industrial flame retardants, the pesticides, some of the metals like mercury, lead, etc. And so then the question becomes, is plastic another source of these chemicals to animals? So my own research has shown that these chemicals can transfer. And then is it enough that causes the toxic effect? And I think that question specifically is the important one in relation to human health because we don't often eat the gut, right? Where we're finding the plastic, we eat the meat. And so if those chemicals are transferring to the meat at a large enough concentration to cause an effect, that's where we have concern of affecting human as well as wildlife. Interesting. So has that research started up? It seems like that would be a tough one to tackle, but in terms of the bioaccumulation into the tissues that are ingested by humans. Yeah, so, I mean, people have certainly looked at bioaccumulation in wild-caught fish, 
So sampling fish from the middle of the ocean or in areas where plastic is at large concentrations and seeing correlations with the amount of plastic in the area and the amount of chemical in the fish. So we found a correlation between that in the South Atlantic with flame retardants. But with the the seafood um, species or actually sampling from market and looking for that, that's something that hasn't been published yet. Um, But I know that I myself am starting to take, you know, that line of research, and I guarantee there's other researchers doing it as well because it really is one of the questions an awful lot of people want answers to. I bet. For those tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stuck, and on my Uh, My guest on the phone is Dr. Chelsea Rockman. We're talking about uh, microplastic studies in fishes that are taking place and some stuff that's been sampled this past year or reports published this past year. So how about shellfish? Because a lot of times we eat the entire shellfish. I know for me, I have no problem sucking down those oysters, and that's the whole thing, the gut and everything. Yep. Exactly. And also in other parts of the world, they eat the entire fish and mm-hmm. eat an entire sardine. So, yes, absolutely. There's a, a high chance that we are also eating plastic. I eat oysters. Even after I did the study, I went and did some research on microplastic in the Chesapeake Bay, and I think I had oysters three times in one week. Mm-hmm. Um, because the jury is really still out in how harmful this stuff is. And so, yes, there are small pieces of plastics in our oysters, in mussels, etc. Um, There's been other researchers that have found this in shellfish from markets, not just from sampling in the ocean. Um, But these pieces are so small, and so the question is, what harm does it cause? And do these plastics actually move straight through our system, just like something else that we may eat that has particles? Or do those plastics, are they small enough to actually translocate or transfer outside the gut into our body and cause harm? And so I think there's an awful lot to learn Um, But I guess at the moment, I'm still operating on the fact that hopefully the benefits of seafood outweigh the costs of this contaminant for now. Great. Well, it definitely opens up another area of research um, that is much needed, especially since this is not necessarily going away anytime soon. Exactly. Um, In terms of waste management, how are um, water treatment plants receiving this information, knowing that we now have something that's, you know, potentially harmful to wildlife and potentially humans that's getting through the water management system in terms of the filtered water that goes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I think the the findings of our research, while a lot of people want to go directly to human health, I think the real finding is related to waste management and showing that the source of these plastics that we're finding, the fibers are coming through the wastewater treatment plant system, and that's the same for microbeads. And um, so for microbeads, I think the wastewater treatment plants, it was a, it's a new contaminant on their radar. For fibers, there's actually publications that date back decades that show that fibers are kind of a signature of sewage sludge or wastewater treatment plant effluent because they know that this material gets into their, their um, effluent and they know that the size of it keeps it from getting caught in that first grate. And so they get it in the treatment that they put in the environment, which is both the sewage sludge, which is land applied, and the final effluent that comes out directly to, you know, oceans, lakes, et cetera. And so they are not um, surprised that it's there. And I think one of the things that wastewater treatment plants do want to stress, though, and I don't blame them, is that um, we should think about ways to stop it upstream before it enters the plant because it's really difficult for them to filter out the very small particles. And when they do, a lot of what they're filtering is going into the biosolids. And with wanting to recycle that material, so that sludge, we're often putting it also back into the environment as fertilizer for agriculture, golf courses, et cetera. Wow. Um, Right. So just like with the microbeads, we see the legislation of of taking it out of personal care products. With the fibers, there's talk about uh, filters for washing machines, which would keep this material from entering the wastewater treatment plants in the first place. And then where would it go if it's filtered at the washing machine? Exactly. The same thing <laughs> our laundry lint goes. So there's really no difference between these fibers and the lint in our dryer. But in our dryer, we have a filter that, is, that traps it, and it's important because it's a fire hazard. There's no hazard to humans or to, you know, our households for those filters not being trapped in a washing machine, or those fibers, excuse me, not being trapped in a washing machine. So there's no filter there because it's inconvenient to clean it out. So it would be an extra step in washing our clothes where we'd actually clean out that lint trap on our washing machine and throw it in the trash can, just like we do the lint in our dryer. Wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now, in terms of the fibers themselves, I'm always, I'm very curious about. I really like the term you've coined here, the chemical cocktail, because it mm-hmm. it's so interesting. But there are a couple different types of fibers that may be more toxic than others, or maybe accumulate other pollutants in the ocean differently. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about those? And the, the high density polyethylene versus PVC or um, low density polyethylene and polypropylene. Sure. Yeah. So plastics are made out of, as you, you clearly are saying, a, a number of different types of polymers, right? And so based on my own research and other people who have looked at what are the difference um, in, I guess, that sorption capacity or the affinity to absorb these chemicals among the different polymers. And so we know that polyethylene and polypropylene and polystyrene, which makes up styrofoam, have a higher affinity for these chemicals than the PVC and the PET. But a lot of the fibers are also made out of a lot of chemicals. So PET, so is polyester. So we know about that one. But a lot of these fibers are made out of acrylic and nylon and things that we haven't really looked at in this capacity. Plus textiles have a very unique um, chemical cocktail added to them in manufacturing that's different than, say, like a water bottle or a laundry detergent bottle, et cetera. So I think when we start studying the toxicity of the fibers, which is certainly the next phase, um, we need to consider this unique, the unique chemical properties of the fibers. The other thing that I'd point out that's interesting about fibers is the shape. And so sometimes shape is the reason for toxicity. So the reason asbestos, for example, is toxic is the shape. It's fibrous. And so it'd be really interesting to see what drives the toxicity of fibers if there is any. Is it even the chemicals or is it the shape or is it a mixture? Interesting. Gosh, so you really get into the small stuff. That's what you really like to look at, these tiny, tiny things. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell, tell us a little bit more about some of the other um, applications in your research that you're up to. And You kind of tra- go across a d- couple different disciplines with plastics, and I know you've done a little bit of work, too, with five gyres who are studying different regions of our ocean planet. Yeah, so I did I did some work with Five Gyres and also with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography um, around 2009-2010, which was looking in, in the gyres. And I think some of what's been really interesting about the work that's happened in these, you know, garbage patches, so to say, or the subtropical gyres, is that in the beginning, I think, when plastic research became kind of a serious scientific issue or a research topic, people were doing research in these subtropical gyres, myself included, going out with... Marcus Erickson and Anna Cummins, and, and sampling the plastic out there and looking for chemical toxicity and what chemicals are in the middle of the ocean. And what I'm seeing is that a lot of these groups are now starting to come back to land. So just like I have, and now I'm looking at sources from land, um, Marcus and Anna, Five Gyres, are also starting to focus on legislation on microbeads and doing work on island communities, et cetera. So, you know, I think that those two, Five Gyres and the Algalita Marine Research Foundation, really led the pack on getting people interested in this topic. And um, and now we're seeing kind of all of us shifting our focus to land. So I was just talking to Marcus earlier today about the microbead legislation, which they've helped author the, some of the bills and also um, some of the work they're doing in rivers. That's fantastic. I, I totally agree. They've been doing some great work. And, you know, I'm curious from the research perspective as a scientist, do you feel that we, we know enough now through the research about the problems that are caused by plastics of all different sizes. Are there any other big questions out there that we don't know enough about in order to work harder on legislation and changing land-based management practices? Yeah, um, I I guess I want to say that I first I love that question because a lot of times what we do as researchers or as industry or whoever it is trying to, to push policy to make a difference is we say, we don't know enough yet. We need more research. We need to understand more. And so, yes, of course, we always need more research. Every time we learn something new, we have new questions that fascinate us, right? And so I could give you a laundry list of things no pun intended, (laughs) that I think we should study in regards to plastic debris. There's an awful lot we still don't know. But I do think we know that this material is ubiquitous in aquatic environments, both freshwater and marine. We know that it's in animals. Hundreds of different species of wildlife are eating it, interacting with it via entanglement. We know it causes toxic effects and mortality. I think there's absolutely enough for the science to drive policy moving forward, which is why I think we're starting to see it happen, which is fantastic. And so I think now what we need 
is both policy-relevant research to test the efficiency of some of these mitigation strategies, and then also, of course, more research just to help us understand better, I think, now the mechanisms that drive the fate of the plastic debris and also the toxicity. It seems like once the human health connection is verified with science, that's going to be a big driver. Absolutely. I think that's huge. And so that's why I think, because I've always been so interested in an applied focus, I think that's exactly why you know, my research is moving in that direction. And also the work of many others that are, I guess, analytical and environmental chemists are, are taking on that kind of responsibility to look into that aspect of it. Well, as a researcher who studied the, the uh, microfibers, the microplastics, the ingestion, and um, how some species, like those fishes you were studying, react, as a consumer, what are your thoughts in terms of recommendations to consumers about products that are safe to eat or not eat or to be cautious about or to ask questions about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of, of seafood in general, often we're told not to eat top predators, right? And often that relates to mercury and PCBs. And I think in the same way when we're thinking about contaminants in seafood because how they move through the food chain and magnify or become larger concentrations in top predators, we can think about that the same for plastic debris. So in a lot of ways, plastic debris isn't any different than other organic contaminants, right? They concentrate on the surface of the ocean. They concentrate in the sediment. They concentrate in animals. They move up the food chain. And so I think when we look at warnings for other chemicals, that may be a first indicator before we know to think about uh, asking questions about the safety of seafood in regards to plastic debris. And then I think also when we're thinking about our seafood, another really important thing to think about is sustainability, right? So those seafood cards that are available can actually be really helpful um, to understand what we should be purchasing in terms of seafood. Are there any specific um, organizations you recommend for folks to follow regarding supporting funding for the Human Health Connection or um, anything else? Supporting funding for it. Um, you know, I think a lot of groups, so EPA, Superfund Region 9, is interested in the, the contamination issue from a toxicity perspective and the seafood, et cetera. So they're starting to do some research and I think fund some other research. Um, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has a policy program, and I, and they also, you know, started the Safe Seafood Guide, and so they're starting to think about this in, in regards to plastic debris. So I would say to follow them in terms of places locally since you are based in Northern California. Excellent. How about for you personally with your work? I'm sure you, you're one of the folks that are really trying to reduce plastic use. What are your top recommendations for everyday folks to really try to think about and reduce their use of plastic on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the tricky thing with plastic is that I would never be the person to tell you it's an evil material. There are some great applications. So a lot of the durable goods that are made out of plastic, great. But I think in terms of a lot of those single-use items, think about what are things that are maybe convenience items and things I don't need. So maybe thinking before you grab that Ziploc bag to put things in a Tupperware or you have a reusable water bottle. And then, you know, buy products that don't have microbeads. But one of the things I've learned on this process, because as a scientist, I'm not a policymaker, but I've gotten involved a bit in the policy around microbeads. And I don't think I understood the power of humans, of citizens, in terms of influencing legislation. So if there's something about plastics that you think should be top-down or from a legislative perspective, email your local um, policymaker or your local government because they care more about what we think, the constituents, than I think a lot of us realize. So getting involved in policy is actually really, really um, beneficial and shows us how powerful we really are. Fantastic. That's great. Uh, Great recommendation. And I have some follow-up of organizations for folks to get in touch with to learn more as well. Great. But Chelsea, thank you so much for coming on Ocean Currents today to talk about your work. It's really great to hear you in the field and sharing these results as you do, because it's pretty pertinent for consumers and people who enjoy seafood. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Great. Thanks again. Have a great holiday. Thank you. You too. Just talking with Chelsea, Dr. Chelsea Rockman, a marine ecotoxicologist, I've been a marine ecologist, and we've been talking about the work that's been done, the research about microplastic ingestion by fish that have been 
fish that we typically eat here in California as well as Indonesia. And still some more lessons to learn, still some more research to be done about the human health connection. But uh, something to know that the fish that you eat does potentially have plastic in it. So very interesting to um, think about those things when we go to the market. There's so many organizations to follow and be inspired by that are working to reduce our plastics use. And as Chelsea mentioned, the things that we are not, we don't necessarily need in our everyday lives, the things that are single use. So it really starts with us to demand the solutions for single use plastics, the most ubiquitous plastic out there. And to purchase as smartly as we possibly can, teach our children, getting engaged with the proposed legislation, and keeping trash off the ground, which is a good part of our next segment today on Ocean Currents. Those organizations that uh, we touched on earlier, 5gyres.org, it's a nonprofit that really led the way for some of the global research that's happened around the world about quantifying plastic in the ocean and now working to help with legislation. MarineDebris.NOAA, N-O-A-A dot G-O-V, our federal agency that works on marine debris issues, part of NOAA. And PlasticPollutionCoalition.org, and this is a group of organizations, including Five Gyres, including Algolita, working together on all of these things. So check them out and consider all of that this time of year when there's a lot of shopping and gift giving as we go around. We are going to take a quick break and come back in a few minutes, and we'll be talking with Jeff Kirshner of Literati. You're tuned to KWMR and Point Race Station and Bellinas. And this is Jennifer Stock, and you are listening to Ocean Currents. And today we're talking about trash, marine debris, plastic. And I'm thrilled to welcome Jeff Kirshner of Literati to Ocean Currents. Jeff, you're live on the air. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So just a little preview here of what we're going to talk about. Marine debris is trash that ended up in the ocean. A good portion of it has made its way through to the ocean through watersheds, from land to streams and rivers to the ocean. And every time you step across a piece of litter on the ground, it's likely to end up in the ocean unless someone like Jeff comes upon it. And Jeff Kirshner, he's a writer, he's a tech entrepreneur, and he has a vision for a litter-free world. He's the founder of Litterati. And Jeff, it's great to finally have you here on Ocean Currents. Let's start from the beginning. How did Litterati come to be? I was walking in the Oakland Woods with my two little kids. And my daughter, who was four, she noticed that somebody had thrown a plastic cup of cat litter into a creek. And she looked at me and she said, Daddy, this doesn't go there. And I know this sounds like a cliche, but for me, that was the eye-opening moment. I was living in the Bay Area thinking, wow, we're surrounded by litter. And so when she said that, um, it actually reminded me of when I was a kid growing up. I went to summer camp. And on the morning of visiting day, before they'd let our parents come in, our camp director would ask each of us to go out and pick up five pieces of trash. So now you put together a whole bunch of kids, each picking up a few pieces of litter, and within a few minutes, we had a much cleaner camp. And so I thought, well, why not apply that model to the entire planet? And that was really the inspiration for starting Literati. So what exactly is Literati? Well, we're really a community. Uh, that is collaboratively cleaning the planet one piece of litter at a time. And through technology, we're actually building a global database of litter. So the way it started was actually on top of Instagram. We had people who were photographing an individual piece of litter, adding the hashtag Litterati, and then throwing out or recycling or composting whatever it was they found. And you can imagine with each of those photographs, we're able to understand quite a bit of data. So we're able to understand who is picking up what, where, and when. So the what is generated by the hashtag, whether it's a Starbucks cup or a plastic bottle cap. There's a geotag with every photograph, so that provides a pinpointed location of where litter is found. And then there's also a timestamp. And so that alone was how we really launched. Once we started building this community and figured out that the data could actually be really valuable to lots of different types of people, we built uh, our own mobile application. And so 
as of recently, we've launched one for iPhone and iPad. Android is in development, um, but that's how it works. So now that you've launched an app for it, which I downloaded, of course, I'm a user, um, is the Instagram, does it all kind of feed together? So if people still use Instagram for it, it still feeds to the same map and provides the same data to you? That's exactly right. So the folks that are still waiting for their Android app, they can, they can still participate? Yes. Excellent. So what are some of the types of patterns that you've seen as, as the community has grown overall in terms of people, perhaps, the types of photos you see, or the hashtags? That's a great question. Um, so in terms of the litter itself and what our community has found, um, and some of this will come as no surprise. So in terms of categories, plastic is far and away the biggest type of litter that is picked up and found by our community around the world. Um, cigarettes are probably a, a distant second. Um, in terms of brands, you know, it's a lot of the consumer packaged goods stuff. So it's Starbucks and Marlboro and McDonald's and Camel cigarettes and Newport cigarettes and Wrigley's and Trident, Snickers and Red Bull. Right, the stuff that is often found in convenience stores and corner stores and things like that, consumed on the go uh, with disposable packaging. In terms of individuals, I think we've um, we've really seen a great level of awareness created with people who may not have otherwise been so aware of their surroundings. And whether that's students, we do a lot of work with schools, students who are now looking at their environment through an entirely new filter or new lens, or whether that's um, just your everyday individual who cares about um, their surroundings, I think people are starting to wake up a little bit more. Um, then there's the fact that because we're applying data to this problem in, in a pretty unique way, I think people are starting to connect the dots to say, you know what, this problem, although huge, is actually really solvable. And the way we can start to solve that problem is be, by becoming smarter about it. And data is really the foundation to that solution. Have there been any communities that have approached you about how they can work using this Literati tool to figure out solutions to litter in their communities? There have, and, and there have been quite a few, and they've come in a variety of shapes and sizes. So I'll, I'll give you maybe just three quick examples. So this morning, in fact, we received um, uh, an email from two environmentalists in Poland who will be uh, traveling down a river in Poland uh, in this coming summer. And their objective is to clean the river and collect litter along their path, and they will be using Literati to document each and every piece they pick up. Um, they will be categorizing it. They will be geotagging it. There will be a timestamp associated. And the idea is to provide them with a platform, a tool, that takes a traditional... Uh, river cleanup and just makes it a little bit more informative. Now they'll have a set of information that they can look deeper into and try and build evidence-based solutions from what they've actually gathered. They'll be able to share that data with others. So that's one example. We've also worked with cities. So the city of San Francisco a few years back had conducted a litter survey to understand what percentage of litter on their streets were cigarettes. And the reason that the city of San Francisco wanted that data was that they used it to create an excise tax on all cigarette sales, which is a meaningful revenue stream for the city of San Francisco. So they had put a couple of people in the streets with pencils and clipboards and collected data around different street locations. They came up with a number, and that number translated into a current 20-cent tax on all cigarette sales. Holy cow, that work, the work that was collected through the <clears throat> literati ended up with the tax on cigarette sales? Not exactly. Oh, okay. It started the work before, they, before we even existed. They had people just using pencils and clipboards, visually spot-checking, that's a cigarette, that's not, that is, that's not. That number, that information they created, that they collected, was used to create that tax. Unfortunately for the city, the city then got sued 
by Philip Morris because mm. the tobacco company said, wait a second, you can't be serious that the way you're collecting data is with pencils and clipboards. Like, that's not really accurate. That doesn't really have integrity. So the city called us and they said, can you help us out? And, you know, I said, look, we can provide you a really robust set of analytics. And so we worked with San Francisco last year and we picked up 4,750 pieces of litter. And we were able to give them this very evidence-based, data-driven number so that when it was used in court, it really could be upheld. That tax could be upheld. And it was um, just one way that we were able to work with the city. Um, One of the stories I'm most proud of is some of the work we've done with schools. One in particular, um, a group of fourth and fifth graders used Literati to really analyze the litter on their campus and they picked up 1,247 pieces just over the course of a couple of weeks. And more importantly than the quantity, they were able to identify that the most common piece of litter on their campus were the plastic straw wrappers from their cafeteria. So these fourth and fifth graders simply went to their principal, showed them the data, and said, why are we still buying individually wrapped straws? And they stopped. And that's a way of using the data to grab an insight that leads to an action that makes a positive change on the planet. That's so awesome. I want to ask, it's really interesting about the clipboard and pencils versus this geotagged photo. What aspect of the the photograph itself do you feel lends to this movement as opposed to just data? Well, there is an artistic component, and that was because of how we started on Instagram. And look, I could tell you that it was by design, but it wasn't. It was a happy accident. Um, I think that when you look at a piece of litter in the environment and add an Instagram filter to it, it can really create a a piece of artwork. In fact, we have an entire literati art exhibit that's been traveling the country um, over the course of the last year and a half. And I think that's been a really nice way in, in terms of getting people engaged. So while, yes, there's the data aspect, which we believe is incredibly valuable, this artistic aspect is really a a nice way, and even a gentle way, to get people to notice their environment in a way perhaps they hadn't before. Oh, that's such a great idea. I I can totally relate to that because looking at the photos, you see these beautiful places, and then you see a squished cigarette butt in there and or a bottle cap, and it really does. It's like a whole other level for awareness um, around the data is seeing the visual, which I think will speak volumes as we go further down the line with using the data. That's right. How about um, dialogue with some of the brands and the companies? You've mentioned that, and has there... Have you thought about approaching companies yet, like Starbucks or some of the other frequent offenders? And it's not obviously their littering, but it's a product of their what they're selling that is ending up in the streets or on the ground. You know, I'm glad that you framed it that way because I, I completely agree. Literati is not about shaming any individual or any corporation at all. Our belief is that we're all in this thing together and we need to create an alignment of interests so that the solution works for everybody. Um, In terms of brands, you know, we have been very patient and hesitant, I would say, in terms of reaching out. And that's really been primarily because I wanted to make sure that before we started knocking on the door of a, you know, a chief sustainability officer or somebody in charge of marketing for a brand, we had a really compelling solution to offer them, right? Not just, hey, there's a problem, you're part of it, and clean it up. We want to make sure that we can bring them uh, an introduction to the problem, but also a solution that makes sense for their brand. And so we have not yet reached out proactively to any brands. We have, however, had certain brands reach out to us. And um, we've done certain things like um, during the California Coastal Cleanup, we did a photo contest that was sponsored by Chipotle, where they gave away free burritos for a year. We ran an Earth Day contest with Whole Foods. Um, Excuse me, it wasn't actually a contest, it was a campaign. If anybody brought in one literati photograph to Whole Foods, they were given a free cup of coffee. It worked for Whole Foods' business model because they knew that anybody who came in for that free cup of coffee was going to shop. We've also had some interesting things happen where brands have reached out directly to our community members. And my favorite example was one person in the community had picked up 
a Nature Valley granola bar and properly discarded of it. And Nature Valley reached out to that individual just in the comments of the Instagram photo and said, thank you so much for picking this up. We would love to send you a free case of granola for you know contributing to a greater good. And you know, what I did was I took a screenshot of that. I posted it on the Literati Facebook page, and I said to the community, this is what it's all about, people and companies working together hand-in-hand to create a benefit for the entire planet. Um, I do think there's a real opportunity to work with brands, position them as thought leaders as we go forward, um, and I am excited to get there. What are areas that I... Are there areas that you see as challenges in terms of cleaning up and on a daily basis, in terms of the regular day-to-day stuff? Are there specific types of communities that you see, whether regionally based or age-based, that are, are a little bit more challenging than others? And how do you feel like Literati might be able to help in those communities? You know, I do see a lot of challenges. I think cleaning the world is a very complex issue, and it, and it goes deeper than just um, people littering. So if you find a Snickers wrapper on the ground, well, maybe it's there because somebody actually threw it there, or maybe it flew out of an overflowing trash can, or maybe it was uh, flying out of a trash truck on you know, the, the trash removal days. There's a lot of reasons as to how and why something has ended up on the ground. So it's not just about changing behavior. Um, So getting to the bottom of that, you know, maybe we need to redesign trash cans Mm -hmm. or redesign trash trucks. I think there's a whole design um, thought process that probably needs to take place. In terms of communities, clearly some communities are more blighted than others. And there could be a lot of reasons for that as well. It might be there's a lack of resource in that community. Maybe one community just doesn't have the funding in place to put the um, necessary amount of trash receptacles and recycling bins that are that are as needed. Or maybe there's a, a deeper sense of pride that um, is absent from certain communities where the the citizens are actually dealing with much deeper personal issues and they just don't have the, the care and pride about their neighborhood that other communities might have. So I do think that there are a lot of different problems and challenges that we face when trying to clean up the planet. Um, and perhaps one of the biggest ones is just cultural differences in how we educate our children. So if you're born into an environment where people habitually recycle, and compost and properly discard of their waste, that's going to um, inform the rest of your life in a way that's very different than somebody who's born into a situation where those practices aren't necessarily in place. And we think that information and education and data is really the right way to start to make sense of this problem, um, because otherwise the status quo is going to continue, and clearly that's not working. And you can really break it down with the data to smaller communities, smaller problems, and workable chunks in a way. It's not just this whole big issue. You can really use that literati data to help frame it in certain aspects to help problem solve. Um, You're right. You, and you just said workable chunk. And I think that's a great phrase because if you look at the – if you were to drive along any U.S. highway right now, it can feel overwhelming. Or if you walk down a city street, it the problem seems really, really big. And people feel overwhelmed and helpless. But if you break it into a workable chunk and give them real tools and simple tools and information to work with, then all of a sudden, little by little, we can start making an impact. Absolutely. For folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents. I'm Jennifer Stock, and I'm talking with Jeff Kirshner, founder of Literati, working for a litter-free planet. Now, Jeff, litter-free planet is kind of the end goal, right? What are some milestones that you have in between where we are now to that end goal? Well, Jennifer, I think from a development perspective, we are focused on building, um, or I should say, continually improving the technology that we've already built. 
So whether it's an iOS application, an Android application, or a web-based interface that allows people to really look at the data and consume it in ways that make sense for them, that's one of the areas where we're really focused. So incrementally, how do we continue to build the technology that we've started and listen to our community and ask lots of questions. What's working for them? What's not? What would they like to see built in? What features do they want? Um, so that's one area. Uh, we'd also really like to start working closer with City and really proving the value uh, of the technology and of the data that's being collected. I firmly believe that a City would be really better off if it understood exactly what was on the ground. So right now, cities have you know, infrastructure in place where certain companies come by and pick up the waste and, and bring it to a local landfill or recycling centers, and that's great, and that infrastructure is working. But there's everything between the, the cans, right? There's tons of litter on the ground. So if we could build municipal litter profiles with cities, could they find new tax streams? Could they from an educational perspective, just understand, hey, these are the top 10 brands we're seeing on our streets. Could we open up a conversation with those companies? Could those companies help fund the cleanups? Could those companies help underwrite educational programs about litter, about the environment that we can work with our public and private schools? So we'd really like to start doing more work with municipalities, um, even at a pilot phase, to try and prove out the value in the data itself. Um, and, and that's another area that we're, we're focused on. And then the last would be certainly brands. Um, is there a way for brands to understand more about their packaging, the life cycle of their packaging? What ends up to a Starbucks cup after it leaves, you know, it's a consumer's hands if it doesn't end up in a, in a trash can or a recycling bin? Um, that I think is something that's of interest to us as well. Great. Let's uh, walk through how somebody can participate in Literati that may not know about it right now. So we've just been talking about this. It's an app that you can use to engage with this community. Can you just talk us through how somebody can start contributing to the Literati community, whether they be an Apple, iPhone, iPad type person or a Android other? <laughs> I don't know what else there is. I'm not so familiar with phones, but... You know, can you talk us through how somebody can start getting engaged with this community and participating? Absolutely. So if you're on Instagram, it's this simple. Find a piece of litter, photograph it, add the hashtag Litterati, and then throw out or recycle whatever it is that you're picking up. If you're an iPhone user, we've now created an application that is really designed to create a, a positive experience. And it works exactly the same way. You find a piece of litter, photograph it, and then we've already included a, a built-in library of tags, including Starbucks and Snickers and cigarette and plastic and things like that. You would select whatever that item is and then throw out or recycle the object. Um, in either case, we're collecting all that data. Um, and over time, we want to start to build in additional features to really nurture the community and connect people and things like that. But that's how simple it is today. That's great. So there's one key piece to that that is important for users to know is they have to have their GPS turned on on their phone, right? Yes, that is true. And um, one of the advantages of the application that we've built is that we're really getting precise in terms of the latitude and longitude. So we're starting to really zero in on exactly, almost down to a meter, where uh, a specific piece of litter is found. It's really neat. So I downloaded the app uh, this summer, and I've been playing with it around my neighborhood because I live in a, a, tri- a tri-school area where there's three schools, and it, it adds a lot of fun for my walks. Although, you know, if I want to get going quicker, I need to keep going. But uh, I went back to, on, to your map online on the literati.com website or literary.org. Which one is it? Literary.org. Yep. Literary.org. Just to see. And it was so cool to see. Oh, that's where I picked that up. And it, there are some items that were really memorable, too. And it's it's kind of neat. I created my own hashtag for the school because one of my goals is to go to that school eventually and show them this is what I get on my daily walks around this school. But um, I also discovered that, uh, you know, for folks that are worried about their data use on their phones, you can just take all these photos, and then if you're on a wireless network at home or at a coffee shop or something, you can upload them on a wireless network. You don't have to upload them on a cellular network, which is really cool. 
That's right. And if anybody, if any of your listeners are interested, we've created a private filter page so that you can filter out all the data and just see your personal impact. Um, and I'm happy to provide that information for anybody who likes. You can just email us at support at literati.org, and we can get you um, that login information. Excellent. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. It's wonderful to hear the whole story and share how people can get engaged in being part of a solution. Um, That starts very simply with just picking up trash and building awareness as you pick up trash and thinking about the connections. I know for me as a user, whenever I do this, I start getting ideas. I get ideas about it, and it's really um, one of the things that helps build hope in terms of helping to make some change. So it's such a cool tool that you're you've created and this community that you're building and I'm looking forward to seeing the numbers continue to grow on the number of pieces collected. It's pretty exciting. Jennifer, thank you so much for having me on today. All right. Take care, Jeff. Bye bye. Bye. We were just talking about Literati, which is an app that you can download for free from the iTunes store. Um, You can also use it through Instagram, and you can learn more about the overall community and effort that Literati is working on at literati, L-I-T-T-E-R-A-T-I dot O-R-G. And as Jeff mentioned, if you want to be able to view a map that just shows your data, the photos that you've collected to analyze, you can email him or email Literati at support at literati dot org. So this is just one of the innovators that are working to help find solutions to reducing the land-based trash that washes into the watersheds, washes out into the ocean, becomes part of the food web that uh, Chelsea was talking about earlier for helping uh, helping make a difference on land because it all starts back upstream, as as Chelsea and Jeff mentioned. Thanks for tuning in today. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. 1 to 2 p.m., and I have a podcast. You can go to iTunes or cordellbank.noaa.gov to hear all the past episodes of Ocean Currents. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas for topics, questions, or comments, please email me at cordellbank, that's C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K, at N-O-A-A.gov. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the ocean, bay, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin, KWMR. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Dot gov.